Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Kathleen Hallisey and Hannah Hodson. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Alan. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Alan. Hi, Kathleen. So before we get underway, just a little reminder that in these podcasts, we talk about sensitive issues, given that we're talking about issues of sexual abuse. It can be upsetting, distressing. And so if you think you're going to be troubled by the content of this podcast, now's the time to turn away, switch off and go and do something else. Otherwise, please do stay with us. In this podcast, we are going to be discussing the Plymouth Brethren. And we've decided to discuss the Plymouth Brethren because it has featured in the Royal Commission that is underway in New Zealand at the moment. And it prompted us to have a think about the Plymouth Brethren, and particularly from the standpoint of the work that we do representing survivors of abuse. So before we delve into Plymouth Brethren and what has emerged in New Zealand, perhaps one of you can explain who the Plymouth Brethren are and a little bit about their history. Yeah, I'm happy to do that, um, just to give people some some background here. So they were formed in the 1820s as a result of believers feeling that the Church of England had abandoned or distorted many of the ancient traditions of Christianity and following decades of dissent and expansion of Methodism and political revolutions in the U.S. and France. They were first formed as a fellowship in Dublin. And then the Brethren Assembly was formed in Plymouth in 1831, which hence is the name. There was a split in the late 1840s into the Open Brethren and the Exclusive Brethren. But as things stand currently, the Exclusive Brethren and the Plymouth Brethren are one and known as the Plymouth Brethren at this point. They believe that the Bible is the supreme authority for church doctrine and practice. They're very cautious about new technologies and the harm that could be caused by them. So while they do use computers at home, work or school, they do not watch television or listen to the radio except in educational settings. They are encouraged to set up their own businesses, but they say that they don't actually as a church own operator or hold any commercial business interests and members run their own family businesses. Children attend special focus schools. They will not eat, form friendships, or communicate with any outsiders except if it's to do business or, interestingly, to lobby conservative politicians. They do do some kind of charitable outreach work to support local communities in times of need. That's a separate charity that they run called the Rapid Relief Team. The largest numbers at this point are in New Zealand, although there are about 16,000 members in the UK, and they run 23 schools here in the UK. But they're not like the Amish people, because when you was, when I'm sitting here listening to what you say about them, I, I was immediately struck by my memories of when I was in on the um, east coast of the States and um, meeting 
people from the Amish community. They're not like the Amish in that, you know, the Amish issue any type of kind of modern living. So there's no they don't use electricity, mm. you know, those types of things. They're not following that type of practice, but they are avoiding I suppose the use of technology or they're suspicious of the use of technology because of the content that members could see by being on the internet or watching television or listening to the radio. I mean, it's very much similar to other groups that we know of, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus Army, and various others that we could name, this kind of idea of of being separate from the world. And so therefore needing to put things in place that separate the members from the world, because the world is seen as depending on the context, of, or I should say, depending on the religious group, the world is seen as demonic or of the devil, sinful, so, et cetera. Yeah. So why have they come to the attention of the Royal Commission? Because there's this Royal Commission in New Zealand that's looking into sexual abuse in the same way as we had the ICSA, the Independent Inquiry here in um, England. And, you know, there was the Royal Commission, of course, into institutional child abuse as well um, in Australia. So New Zealand's doing its its thing. So why have the Plymouth Brethren come under some scrutiny? Well, as far as I can see from research, since 2016, there's been a lot of people coming forward, ex-members of the group disclosing sexual abuse, most of it child sexual abuse. There was a study carried out by a former group of members in 2016 in New Zealand that found that four out of 10 former members who had responded to the study had experienced sexual abuse as a child within the organisation. There was also a further study in 2017. This was by a UK psychologist, but I believe this was looking at members in New Zealand, 27% of 264 former members had reported being sexually abused as children with the church. So it seems as though there's been in recent times a lot of allegations and a lot of these have been from former members in New Zealand. So as you say, Alan, in April 2022, the Royal Commission of Inquiry in New Zealand did expand their investigation scope to include investigating the abuse of children in the Plymouth Brethren. So that's really how it came about, as far as I can see from research. Okay. Has it arrived at any conclusions yet? Has it made any findings? So they had a public hearing in October 2022. Now, they weren't just looking at the Plymouth Brethren, they were looking at other faith-based institutions. So from what I could see, there wasn't a lot of information available specific to just the Plymouth Brethren. Kathleen, I don't know if you have have seen anything different at all. I haven't, but I think the conclusions that the New Zealand inquiry has come to are pretty common to how a lot of faith-based institutions deal with allegations of sexual abuse, which, you know, is often that they're investigating themselves or they don't investigate at all. So survivors are deprived of the ability to obtain redress. They don't apologize. And if they do apologize, it's often kind of conditional on the if the offending did occur, meaning that they're not believing the, the victim or survivor. They don't offer counseling. They sometimes use confidentiality clauses or what's commonly called NDA, non-disclosure agreements, to prevent anybody speaking out about 
an allegation of abuse or a claim that's been made and then and then settled. Generally, the New Zealand Inquirer was talking about various faith-based institutions having that type of response, of which it appears that they're also referring to the Plymouth Brethren. But I think it's interesting to look at how there's commonalities amongst how various faith-based institutions respond to allegations of sexual abuse. But also, I think, interesting to look at why we haven't seen more cases involving the Plymouth Brethren here in the UK. I mean, we're talking about 16,000 members and they run 23 schools. And if everything is quite insular and you're meant to keep yourself separate from the world, as we know from other abuse cases and other faith-based settings, those types of situations can certainly be a haven for abusers, but also perpetuate abuse because there isn't really anywhere for the victim or survivor to go. And the abusers can often operate with impunity in those types of settings where everything is dealt with kind of in-house. Yeah. And critics of them talk about, don't they, um, being controlling and I understand there's this sort of alleged practice of quote unquote shutting up where it is said, whether it's correct or not, that families or persons can be confined to their homes if they break the rules as some kind of um, punishment. You know, I note if you if you go into all of this, it's it's controversial and there's allegations and denials and so on, and a claim that people were sort of shut up from some period of time was investigating, it was found not to be correct and so on. I'm just looking here. Did you come across this practice of as a punishment of shutting people up in their homes? So there was a case study that I found. This was a former member in Canada, I believe. She was speaking of the sexual abuse that she was a survivor of from when she was a member when she was a child. And mm. she was explaining how the abuse happened. And as Kathleen just said, they they followed a doctrine of separation, which was a sort of punishment that they had within the church and essentially what would happen is that children would be removed from their parents to live with other members and and this is what this case study um her name was Beth was was talking about her parents were forced by them to be confined to a term of almost like imprisonment in their own home and she was removed placed in another member's house and that's where she was sexually abused for years so I'm not sure if that's what you were referring to Alan yeah it's just on on here there was something called the third sect County Council and police dismissed complaints against Brethren School. Anonymous source had claimed that children at Wilton Park School were subjected to abuse for creating Facebook pages. Police and social services have dismissed complaints about Wilton Park School, an independent school near Salisbury, run by a Plymouth Brethren Christian Church charity. School staff and governors were accused of improper actions in a document written by an anonymous source who identified themselves as a teacher at the school. Among the complaints were the allegation the school had colluded in the social exclusion of pupils. The document seen by a third sector was sent to Wiltshire County Council. An investigation was launched involving the council and the police. A statement published by the council today said officers from Wiltshire Police and Wiltshire Social Services conducted an investigation at the school. Following this, it's been unanimously agreed by all agencies involved that no specific safeguarding issues were identified and the investigation is now concluded. The school is run by Wessex Schools Trust, a registered charity run by members of the Brethren, that has a strict doctrine of separation. If members cannot eat, drink or socialise with non-members, 
are forbidden from watching television and listening to the radio and can use the internet only sparingly. Yeah, I think what I've found, Alan, this this practice of shutting up or also now more recently called shrinking, as in shrinking away from somebody, is the kind of step before being excommunicated. So right. if you're a Brethren member who has been shut up, so to speak, then you're not allowed to attend meetings or socialize with other members. So I suppose you could think of it as a kind of form of shunning, but before they've actually mm. been formally excommunicated. What I found, though, as well about excommunication is that if you're excommunicated, then you have to give up your job as well as your family and your home. It's a very strict form of of shunning. You know, we see shunning in other faith settings, but not necessarily a requirement to give up your job and your family and your home. They have very strict rules on sexuality in contact with secular society. And there's a story here on the BBC News website, is a, a, a news reporter story by a former member who says he was terrified by the church's response when he revealed his sexuality, I think, lost contact with his family. A bit like the Jehovah Witnesses sort of being mm. claims that we get, you know, we, we hear from members who complain that they've been abused and they end up, you know, being allegedly being shunned. Yeah. I appreciate that uh, those who dispute all of this, of course, as we discovered with the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse and um, various cases that we've had. Right. Anyway, so, um, yes, it does sort of strike a number of chords, so to speak, in respect of where we are instructed to bring cases this person who gave his story to the BBC says he describes how he broke the groups or the brethren's rules, rather, by buying a smartphone. Yeah, OK. Mm. There'll be those who say, well, maybe the Plymouth brethren are onto something, whereas others would say, well, actually, no, it's, it's sort of coercive and controlling, isn't it? So, mm. yeah. I, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether there's any cases that come out of this faith setting and abuse within it, but you can see, given everything that we've talked about in these practices of kind of shutting up or withdrawing or shunning and the lack of kind of access to technology, how difficult it would be for a victim or survivor from that community to come forward. Yes, well, we know, don't we, through the clients that we've represented, you know, they can be very fearful, I think that's the right word, of how they're going to be treated by their families and community if they make a disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, it's um, a big deterrent, you know, that sort of controlling or coercion, if you prefer, mm. of how someone can behave and think can act as a barrier to reporting crime, which mm. whether you are of a secular mind or of a religious mind cannot be right, not in the 21st century, let alone at any time. Absolutely. Yeah. Certainly what I've seen from my cases, and I'm sure you have from yours as well, is that when things are dealt with in-house, there's obviously a lack of expertise, understandably, in dealing with allegations of abuse and particularly in discovering that somebody is a pedophile or, you know, being aware that someone is a pedophile. And often what that leads to is an abuser going on to abuse more and more victims. Whereas if it was turned over to, you know, specialists, experts in the police, social services, et cetera, it's more likely that the abuse would have ended and it wouldn't have created multiple victims. Oh, yeah. And 
we know, don't we, from the ICSA and from the cases that we brought against various religious organisations, whether it's mm. Jehovah Witnesses or whoever it happens to be, that objectively, I think we can say that they make things worse for themselves, you know, where yeah. they've had senior people trying to investigate allegations and controlling that investigation and controlling mm. what the victim does or what the alleged victim does or mm-hmm. does not as you prefer they actually make it a lot worse for everybody they, Absolutely. Yeah, you know it's self-defeating they think they're being i don't know do, doing the right thing let's be charitable let's assume for argument's sake that they think they're doing the right thing actually they're making life a lot worse for themselves their religion and for the victim it's also defeating. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I often say, you know, from a liability point of view, particularly in terms of the kind of failure to investigate or failure to safeguard after a negligent investigation, they'd be doing themselves a favor in terms of liability if they did actually turn things over to the police and secular authorities rather than dealing with it all themselves. Yeah. And of course, you know, they then, you know, they still pursuing some of them this argument, but it's nothing to do with them. If sexual abuse happens under their roof, so to speak, well, that's between the, they sort of say the people involved and nothing to do with them, which is, I would say, from what we see and hear, totally divorced from reality. Yes. And also, but mm. it's, I mean, it's a misstatement of the legal position in terms of vicarious liability, but also, you know, from my experience of those cases on the ground, what happens in terms of separation of children from parents is kind of standard practice versus, you know, kind of what's within their documentation or what they say happens. So I think this is a story that is actually going to probably grow because once these organisations are exposed to the oxygen of publicity, if there is sexual abuse taking place, once the lid off, you can't put it back. If members have been sexually abused, whether it's that religion or any other religion, once the lid's off, it's off. It just takes one person, you know, I mean, uh, incredible amount of courage and bravery to do so, but it takes one person coming forward and, and then there being publicity around that to give other people the courage as well to come forward. And also, as you say, kind of puts the oxygen in the room so that you can't really turn away from what's happened. No, exactly. Okay, so on that note, we'll draw this podcast to a close. If there's anyone out there who is affected by this story in any way, please do get in touch with us. By all means, go to our website, which has lots of information about what you can do and who you can speak to and so on. So please do access it. Otherwise, it's goodbye from me, it's goodbye from Hannah, and it's goodbye from Kathleen. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.